So we'll pick up at chapter 26, verse 2. Let me read you his speech, his defense speech. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God night and day, O King. It is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And, it was that, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, I was on the road. And I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and, in, and the Gentiles also. I preached that they should ret- repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to raise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not sane, insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because none of it has been, has, uh, been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My greatest longing for each of you is to become more like me. 
What an outrageous thing to say. Um, I mean, even, even the suggestion that that might be a, a question in your mind is, is outrageous. How could I possibly think uh, that you uh, would it'd be interested and that, it, that there would be something about me that would make you, that it would be appropriate for me to say that you should somehow become like me? But that's exactly what Paul says. Um, and he says it, with a, there's, a, there's more absurdity there than there is even with me standing here. Um, Paul is, as I said, standing there, disheveled and in chains. He's standing in the great hall of audience built by Herod the Great. He's standing before the Roman governor, the king of Judea, uh, his sister, and lots of other dignitaries, all in their robe with all the pomp and ceremony. And he stands there and basically says, I am the luckiest guy in the room. I wish you could be more like me. What on earth is Paul talking about? What could that possibly mean? Well, you could say basically that Paul is talking about the joy of responding to God's call, the joy of conceding to him after sort of struggling against him. To, to use a carpen, carpentry analogy, uh, it, is the, it is the joy of going with God's grain as opposed to against it. If God is calling you to himself, there is perfect freedom and joy in responding to that call, and there is perfect frustration in refusing it. But what does that look like? What does that look like in the way that Paul talks? Well, there's a lot of giving up, and there's a lot of being given that which is incomparably better. And I want to just look at three things that Paul gives up, and three things, therefore, that he also receives back multiplied. Uh, and these are the things that makes him feel that jangling chains and all, he can stand before these kings and queens and say, if you're really lucky, you'll get to be like me. The first thing uh, I think that we see that Paul was willing to give up was his intellectual assumptions. Now, he was not asked to give up his intellectual rigor. Um, he wasn't asked uh, to give up actually the foundations of the way he had understood his life, his, the world, all of his life. Uh, no, he, he's asked to, ch to change the assumptions that he's made about the world around him. He had to be willing to challenge things that he was absolutely convinced about. I don't know if you noticed that word back in verse 9, the first page of our reading. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. And then what we hear is in an awful lot of what would have been incredibly humiliating backtracking. The poster boy of a certain theological position suddenly finds himself going, actually, you know what? I'm completely reversing what I believed about who Jesus is. Um, I actually believe that this Christ, this, this new king of Israel, has come, um, and we know that because Jesus is that man, and, we, and it's proven because he was raised from the dead. And actually, in Jesus, we discover that, that the big message isn't just, just for this little group of people who call themselves Jews, but he has blown it open to everybody in the world, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And more than that, as part of that, it's no longer uh, a story about the law and about being accepted by God because we can, we can be good enough for him. It is about God's open and loving forgiveness of all of those who come to him. 
These were radical ideas for him uh, uh, from somebody of that background. Now, of course, he gets this blinding light uh, which triggers this search. And of course, we all long for that, don't we? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God gave us some blinding lights? Um, but actually, it wasn't just that for him. Uh, we know from lots of places that Paul, that that triggered for Paul a deep searching of what he understood about the world. He went back through the Old Testament scriptures, of which he was one of the greatest experts, and he reached a different conclusion. Look there, verse 22 and 23 in our reading, um, starting halfway through the verse. He says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that Christ, the Christ, who is the longing of the whole Old Testament, basically, would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. The point is that the gospel that Paul is talking about, this good news of Jesus Christ, is intellectually reasonable. And even more than that, it is emotionally intuitive. That is not to say for a moment that it is without its questions and challenges and mysteries. Um, But that fundamentally, it was the fulfillment of uh, our greatest longings, do go back and listen on the website to some of the sermons that Richard's preached, where he's, he talks a little bit about how, um, in whether he is speaking to the Jewish world or to the Greek world, uh, Paul is able to explain what he believes in ways that are intuitive and reasonable to a whole range of worldviews. Um, but what humility that would take, but also what courage because it does demand that we come to this absurd conclusion that God has raised somebody from the dead, and not only him, but one day all of those who follow him. What a, what a nuts idea in our world to actually say that we believe such a thing. And this, this was controversial at the time. You might have noticed in verse 8, there's this sense of Paul picking up this part of the, the argument. He says, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead. And of course, this is the thing that really gets Festus, uh, you know, in a bit of a tiz later on, when he finally just stands up and he says, Paul, you're insane. Your learning is driving you mad. And yet, arguably, for the creator of the world to allow, to raise somebody from the dead is in itself I would argue, intellectually reasonable. Now, I'm not going to say much more on this topic, but I would, I would challenge you, um, if this is where you, you find yourself, you find yourself uh, presented with the Christian faith in, in a way that challenges your assumptions about the world, dead men don't rise, or whatever else, Paul's first act was to find the humility and open-mindedness to respond to uh, this blinding light by examining things afresh. Um, And that's what I challenge you to do. But it's not the only thing that Paul gave up. He also gave up his agenda, which was kind of a natural outflowing of this. Let me point out a few verses. Uh, We just mentioned verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus Christ. Um, And he describes what that looks like um, for a few verses. At the end of verse 11, in my obsession against them, 
I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Um, and then you have this extraordinary bit about the blinding light in the middle, um, and a verse which we'll need to explain a little bit in the middle of it. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Um, verse 17b, he describes how he, as somebody whose life had all been about protecting the purity of this Jewish faith and getting rid of all of those who thought otherwise, especially the followers of Jesus, um, who were just heretics as far as he was concerned, he finds himself with this entirely different agenda. He knows God calling him, verse 17b, uh, to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have faith in me. This is, again, a massive reversal. This is a complete turning upside down of all in his life. Now, actually, in the story of Luke, we've, we've, heard about, we've heard about Paul's big blinding light moment a couple of times. And part of you sort of should be asking, well, why doesn't Paul just... Why, why does Luke, the writer of the book, just sort of say, well, and then Paul told his story again, um, and move on? Why didn't he save the ink and papyrus, which would have been very expensive? Because he wants to bring out this slightly different aspect of the story. And that is in this phrase that we haven't seen yet. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We've seen before. But then he continues, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. I don't know if you know what that means. Um, if, if you had an oxen that was plowing the, the, your field for you, your, your goad was the, was the sharp stick that you would use to keep them in the right furrow. Um, and so that's quite an image, isn't it? Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't exactly sound like perfect joy and freedom. God saying to Paul, stop kicking against, because there's no point kicking against the goat, there's no, you know, the, the, which is what an oxen would do in frustration. I'm not, I'm not massively drawn to this, Paul, I have to say. Um, but I think it gives us some, some interesting insight into the nature of the freedom that Paul understood he was being given. Sometimes we think of freedom as the absence of anything controlling or anything incident upon us. Um, but actually, True freedom is to participate in God's world in a way that reflects the way God has made us, um, going with the grain of God. And arguably, if God is our creator, he has every right to expect that from us. Um, if you're into sport, uh, which Henry, uh, who's out with Ethan, uh, of course, is, I mean, Henry would know better than anyone that sense of uh, the, the freedom <coughs> of playing within a well-trained, well-rehearsed team, not allowing yourself to just watch from the sidelines. Arguably, the person on the sidelines has more freedom. They can wander off and go and get a burger. But actually, what wonderful freedom of playing in that team. You, if you're looking at me, you're probably saying, Jez, you don't know, you don't know anything about the freedom that comes with sport. Um, Think of, think of a conductor, think of a, an orchestra, think of the, if there's a violinist halfway down, they're going, oh, actually, I'm going to play some Spice Girls. That's not, that's, that sounds like freedom on one level, but of course it isn't, is it? Or to give you a, a very dull illustration, it shows how dull some of my life has been so far. I spent a lot of my life writing operating manuals for, um, for those large-scale, if you think of a recording studio with this, in, you know, endless buttons, those desks, I, I used to write operating manuals for those. And of course, the, the problem that I am trying to address when I am writing that manual 
is that vision I can see of an operator standing in front of that thing going, why can't I hear anything? How do I do this? The, the manual, which often gets chucked out with the packaging because you've spent half a million on this extraordinary piece of kit, um, is, the, is actually the way in which you can have total freedom in your use of the equipment. So, Paul recognizes that the greatest freedom we can have is by functioning within what God has created. Um, if God loves you um, and he loves the world that he's given you as a gift, then surely that's the place to start in finding perfect freedom. So Paul has had his, uh, his assumptions challenged and changed, and that has led to this fundamental change of agenda from persecuting uh, the followers of Jesus to actually becoming one of the most uh, potent, arguably, followers of Jesus. I might ask you, what is, what is your agenda and how would coming face to face with Christ change what it is uh, that gets you up tomorrow morning? And I suppose that brings us on to the third giving up that we see here. Um, and that is the giving up of actually more than just agenda, more than just assumptions, giving up of Paul's very life. Um, Paul had really chosen to be where he was. Um, if you know the story of, of, of the Gospels, of, of Jesus, uh, as he approaches his crucifixion, in fact, the second half of two or three of the Gospel stories of his life are shaped around this idea that Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen there, but he is resolute. He is no victim of his execution. He chooses it because of his love for us. And again, there's this hint of that here. We've seen in the story, and we'll read a little bit in a minute, of, of Paul on his way to Jerusalem. People are saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You know what's going to happen to you there. And he says, I know what's going to happen to me. But, so he's got this intention. He chooses this way forward. And of course, this is one of the big themes of the book of Acts, this sense of the mirroring of the life of Christ in the life of his followers, the giving up of all, but actually to be, uh, to be given the greatest life that there could possibly be. Let me read just a couple of verses um, from, the, the, this, is, this is Paul speaking to some of his friends as he's returning to Jerusalem, knowing he's never going to see them again. And, and this is from the passage that uh, Richard looked at last week. Um, and he says to his friends from Ephesus, well, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of his grace. So Paul has seen how uh, the Christian life is a dying to the broken and the temporary of this world. Um, a dying to that which suddenly looks like nothing, like worthlessness, compared to the eternal beauty offered in, uh, in the life of Christ. So he stands there in his chains, jangling with every gesticulation, um, with a prisoner's beard, probably very thin. Um, he knows that his life is on a cliff edge. If he gets this wrong and the Jews get hold of him, that's the end. And yet he stands there in front of all these dignitaries and is able to say, you know what, I'm the luckiest guy in the room. 
This is how Jesus talks about this, a similar idea. He says that actually finding God, finding Christ, is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a, when a man found it, he hid it quickly. And he sold everything he had to buy that field. And it says, actually, it says, and with joy he sold everything he had to buy that field. It's just good economic sense, you know. The Christian life is, is, is full of these ideas of giving up, um, but also of being given that which is uh, far beyond anything that we have given up. Um, and I suppose I just want to leave you uh, with, that, with the question of those three giving ups, which is the most pertinent for you? Uh, are you at a place where what you need to do is, is give up your certainty, give up your assumptions, um, uh, give up uh, the strength of your conviction, and just allow yourself to re-examine uh, things, even from an intellectual point of view, from an emotional point of view, at a really fundamental level? Or, or is it more your sense of agenda, your sense of what drives you tomorrow uh, to do the things you do, your vision, your purpose statement, one might say? Um, do you, is God placing a call on your life um, that you need to respond to in which there will be perfect freedom? Or is there something deeper, more fundamental? Is God inviting you uh, to turn to him, to give up all that you've been chasing after and uh, know the joy of being part uh, of his people? What would it look like tomorrow for you to stand uh, at the school gates or in the office or wherever you are um, among those who might be wealthier, more popular, more admired, more successful, more comfortable and say, you know what? I'm luckier than all of you, and I long for you to be as I am. Let's just have a moment of quiet as John comes to lead us again. Thank you, Father, for Paul. Thank you for uh, this journey that he went on um, of giving up and finding in you uh, the incomparably better. And I pray that you would show us, uh, those who know you and those that don't uh, alike, that you would show us where it is that we need to give up, um, where we need to stand, uh, knowing a greater freedom than any uh, of the chains that might be on us, the, the freedom of belonging to your new people. Amen.